0: Have you ever noticed how everyone seems to talk about the weather, but nobody does anything about it? Uh, I wonder why that is, right? No, just kidding. Actually, I've heard from several individuals, uh, much older than I am, that this is one of the hardest, if not the hardest winter that we've ever seen in Chadron. Uh, and that sounds a bit dramatic but but it is true uh it 's the hardest one i 've seen and uh you know there's there 's things that I enjoy about every season, and uh, i don't think it's any secret to any of you any of you. I prefer spring over winter myself uh, because I like gardening, but uh, that 's hard to do in the winter, right but i 've noticed something this winter through this long, bitter Season, and especially during this last uh, this last snowstorm that we 've had that the hope of spring keeps me going through the the bitter storms, the bitter seasons, those long storms. The hope of spring gives me peace and joy and contentment in the storm and through the long winter season see i, I don 't have to complain even though I want to sometimes. I don't have to complain. I don't have to be discontented. I don't have to enter despair because I know. I know from history and I know from looking at the weather app on my phone, right? <laughs> that there's that there's better days ahead. You know, it's not going to last forever. Winter's not going to last forever, right? And so When you when you when you know that, right, it helps you get through those hard seasons. You you can look forward to better days with great anticipation, right? So hope makes a big difference there. But let's just take that that thought and just amplify that a bit, right? There's a there's a lot of stormy circumstances and bitter seasons that we can go through in this life. And like the weather, there's not a thing we can do about it. You know, it's not in our power to do anything about it, right? We might experience we experience loss, loss of loved ones. You know, we we experience uh, heartache, depression, and there's things that we just can't change. And what we need in those moments when we're tempted to despair is hope. And the hope I'm talking about this morning is not is not an uncertain wishing. I hope that. We're talking about a hope that is confident expectation. I have confident expectation that spring is coming because it always has, right? That's the kind of hope we're talking about. Hope is vital for us as people in a fallen world. We need to know that there's better days on the way. Wouldn't you agree? Well, that's what Easter's all about. It's a holiday of hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead gives us the ultimate hope but because the resurrection is so fantastic it's so amazing it's such an incredible miracle that a lot of people naturally wrestle with its reality every year during this time people wrestle with the historicity of the resurrection i mean is it true did it really happen can i really have this hope Let's be honest. Right? I don't we don't want to place our hope in something that isn't true. We're not going to place our we don't want to place our hope in something that's going to let us down. That would be foolish, right? Even the apostle Paul said, if the resurrection didn't happen, our faith is get this, worthless. If the resurrection didn't happen, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. He also said in 1 Corinthians 15 that as Christians, we would be without hope if the resurrection didn't happen. And as Christians, we're most to be pitied because we've believed a lie this whole time. That's Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. So here's the thing. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave we have zero hope we have no hope but if jesus did rise from the grave then we have infinite hope right hope abounding hope that is eternal imperishable it's not going to pass away and no matter what you go through in this life you always have better days ahead right eternal uh, eternity with god and so that's why I want us to look at some of the hard evidence this morning related to Easter or the Passion Week or Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' life. And I, want, and I want to do this because I want to boost your faith and therefore boost your hope. You know, uh, Last fall we looked at the scoop. You know, It's just an archaeological term. But uh, we looked at the scoop on David and Goliath. We looked at all these archaeological evidences, artifacts related to David and Goliath. And if you uh, want to look up that message, it's on our website somewhere. But today I want to look at the scoop on, on Passion Week on Easter. And uh, I'm just guessing, but I'm pretty confident that uh, you've never heard a message like this before on Easter Sunday. And uh, if you're a believer already... In Christ, then you're going to find your faith being affirmed. You're going to enjoy it. And if you're not a Christian, but you're here this morning because someone drug you along, right, a friend or a family member, um, and, and maybe you're seeking, maybe you're questioning truth, maybe you're questioning if this resurrection thing is really real. Um, I hope that at the end of the day, you find yourself a little more challenged to believe it, and a little more encouraged to go seek out some more information, seek out the historicity of the resurrection. And uh, that's that's one of my goals today. Anyway, I come. I do come with an agenda, like I do every Sunday, okay? I come with an agenda. I really want you to believe the resurrection. I know it's true. It did happen, and it has infinite hope for you, okay? And there's always, if you believe the resurrection, it doesn't matter what you go through. It's like I said, there's always going to be a rainbow. There's always going to be light, you know, in your life beyond the storm. Even the darkest days can be sunny days when you, when you have the hope of the resurrection. And plus, here's another reason why I come with an agenda. It's because the Bible says your eternal destiny. And it's not me talking. It's the Bible. The Bible says your eternal destiny, right? Heaven or hell depends on whether you believe in Jesus Christ or not. So that's another reason for this. But uh, I want to talk a bit about biblical archaeology and how that uh, coincides with faith for a little bit. But biblical archaeology... Okay, just as a subject or as a discipline has become a, a subject or discipline of great interest to me. It's kind of a hobby horse. And I try not to hop on it every Sunday so I don't wear you guys out. But uh, I'm pursuing a degree that has a concentration in biblical archaeology. And I said if I had two lives, I would devote one to being a pastor and one to archaeology. I mean, that's how much I just enjoy it. Um, if I had three, I would also invest one in farming and gardening That sort of thing. I think I just like to play in the dirt. I don't know. There's something about it. There's nothing like a freshly tilled field. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you do. But mention archaeology around most people, and what do they think of? What are you thinking of right now? I know what you're thinking of. You're thinking of Indiana Jones, (laughs) right? Or Laura Laura Croft, the, the tomb raider, these... Pseudo archaeologists, these fake archaeologists who typically go around and they raid tombs by themselves and they find all these, you know, magical and powerful artifacts. Um, Mention biblical archaeology, and some people think you're, you know, well, maybe Indiana Jones again since he discovered the Ark of the Covenant, you know, and the the power that was in that ark or whatever. But um, that's very. Far-fetched. Okay? A real archaeologist doesn't work by himself. He doesn't work with, you know, usually these uh, sensational treasures. He works um, with a team of specialists and volunteers, and they meticulously go through layers and strata of dirt, just little by little by little, and uh, basically document everything that they uncover. They're uncovering... Uh, Everyday items, pottery, tools, buildings, graves, bones. Occasionally they find literature, right? Like the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, it's what we might call material culture. And I, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but archaeology is a relatively recent discipline. It's only, it's basically birthed 150 years ago or yes, or, or less, sorry. But there have always been people interested in, in antiquities, but not archaeology. And what really seemed to spark the interest in archaeology was Napoleon Bonaparte. He conquered Egypt uh, right around 1800 and most of the Near East. And his conquest really, uh, because of Islam, right? It was, it was closed off. That section of the world was closed off for a long time. But he goes in there, he conquers it, and he, basically the, it opened it up that the Near East, to the Western world. So we could actually go in there. We could dig. And one of his, uh, uh, one of his, his people found the Rosetta Stone. You've all heard of this, right? Because we have a language learning program after it. Uh, there was three languages on this Rosetta Stone that all said the same thing, that unlocked Egyptian hieroglyphs, Egyptian hieroglyphics. And uh, that fueled all the interest in this field. And, and then you've got Israel... You know, being declared a nation again in 1948, and, and wow, we've got access to the Holy Land like never before. And so we really are living in a, a golden age of biblical archaeology, but get this, only 1% of it, it has actually been excavated. 1% of Israel has only been excavated. Only 5% of the Levant, you know, that entire eastern Mediterranean region has been excavated. So 1% and 5%. But uh, they're making really good progress. And there's, guys, there's fresh and exciting discoveries being found all the time that aid in our interpretation of Scripture. And that's really the primary goal of biblical archaeology. It is to illuminate our, our understanding of the Bible. So many times, I can't tell you as a pastor, as I'm reading through the Scriptures, that, you know, we find some sort of connection, real tangible connection with uh, that the ancient Near East culture and the culture of Israel in Galilee or Jerusalem, and then it finally makes that scripture really come alive you know the 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 implication of the text in god 's Word is fully brought to bear through uh our understanding of the ancient world, of the, these ancient biblical writers. And so uh, the driving force really behind this is to know God's word better, to sharpen our understanding of it. And uh, I think you're going to notice, Christians, uh, archaeology coming up more and more all the time because Christian apologists, right, those who defend the faith, uh, are increasingly realizing the value of it. Archaeology adds another layer for a defense of the faith okay it's another layer of defense for the faith and that's another reason why i want to share this message you remember what peter said in first peter 3 15 he said always be ready to give a defense for the reason for the hope that is in you Give a reason for the hope that is in you. And so this is what this does. Archaeology gives another reason, another layer for the hope that's in you. And so as Christians, we are guys, we're all apologists in a sense. We all have to defend the faith at times. And I want us to be familiar with some of those discoveries related to the first century world and life of Jesus so that you can help others believe. Because um, I'll be honest, I, re- I relate really well with Doubting Thomas. Y'all know who the... I'm getting all Southern here. But y'all know who the, the, the disciple Doubting Thomas is? Right? Uh, the guy who said, I will not believe the resurrection unless I put my finger in Jesus' nail holes, right? The scars in his hands or in the, the hole that was in his side. That's Thomas. I won't believe unless I see evidence. Tangible evidence. He wanted hard evidence. And maybe some of you guys are here this morning and you you think the same way. You don't want to make a big decision to come to Christ or follow Christ based on some emotional pleas. There's no amount of emotion that I can exude, ex, I don't even know what the word is, uh, from this pulpit, right, that's going to convince you because you're a rational person. You think, right? You're not going to, you're not going to come to Christ based on emotional pleas. You want to know from with real facts, right? Real historical evidence that there is a resurrection. You're a lot like Thomas. And you know what? That's noble. Did you know Jesus didn't give Thomas a hard time for wanting evidence? He didn't. So as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised when people ask for evidence. Is there evidence? And you know, The the Bible says our faith is the evidence of things not yet seen. That doesn't mean that our faith isn't based on strong evidence that is or already has been seen. Our faith is actually driven by facts. Evidence is a faith builder. It's a faith builder. We should desire hard evidence to grow our faith. Um, One gal said, uh, not in relation to the resurrection specifically, but in in relation to miracles today. She said this uh, just this last week. In response to some claimed miracles, she says there's a difference between credulity, a gullible or naive acceptance of any claim, and belief. Reasonable belief must be grounded in evidence. Okay, Let's look at some of that evidence. Four artifacts related to Passion Week. Uh, Number one, the Caiaphas ossuary. Okay, and in Jesus' final week, he stood trial several times. One of those was before Caiaphas, the acting Jewish high priest at the time. Some debate whether he was really the high priest. I mean, he was in position, but actually it was Annas, right? Who was the, he was really controlling. like He's behind the scenes, right behind the curtains, controlling Caiaphas. But um, he's this great figure of Jewish authority, right? And Matthew 26, 57 says, Those who arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. So this is one of his trials. And according to first century Roman Jewish historian Josephus, same time frame, Caiaphas, his first name was Joseph, but the people called him Caiaphas. So Josephus, son of Caiaphas, was his, would have been his real name, full name. But sources indicate That he was the acting high priest from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. Someone uh, do some math here or whatever. Tell me when Jesus was crucified. A.D. 33. So we're talking A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. There it's confirmed that he was the acting high priest. While Jesus was being crucified. And, there, and, and many scholars and archaeologists agree that they've discovered the ossuary of Caiaphas. Well, what's an ossuary? It is a bone box, essentially. You read in the Old Testament how they used to carry around their grandfather's bones or whatever. And how Moses had to take bones out of Egypt. You know, Joseph's bones or whatever, Jacob's bones. And so, um, an ossuary is a box often carved from stone that was used to store the bones of a deceased individual. In the first century, Jews would lay their loved ones in, in a tomb, uh, like uh, on a burial bench or a niche that was carved out into the wall of that tomb. And uh, they would basically put them in there after preparing the body. And get this, this is, this is terrible. I would, I would hate to do this. One year later, they would, they would go in again and they would basically take their bones and wash them and put them in an ossuary, in a box. And then they would put it, that box in that central chamber so that that niche or that, that burial bench could be used again. How would you like to do that? Go back in again and get your family's members' remains. and Yeah, that would be terrible. But they did that so they could reuse that area. But uh, in 1992, two ossuaries with the Caiaphas family name on them, were accidentally discovered during construction just south of the old city, Jerusalem. And one ossuary was ornately decorated, and you saw in that picture, uh, indicating that it belonged to a wealthier, prominent citizen, right? This is not your average ossuary. This thing is highly decorated, and it has an Aramaic inscription. That's the language Jesus probably spoke the most, Aramaic. And uh, the, the, the inscription reads, Yehoseph bar Caiapha, Joseph, son of Caiaphas. And that's the, it fits the New Testament spelling of the name Caiaphas perfectly. And uh, the remains in it, at least some of the remains, were a 60-year-old individual, a man. Did you know you can tell, what, I shouldn't say this, but you can tell what the gender is of a person by the bones. I saw a professor trying to argue against that this week You know liberal uh, college but uh, (laughs) all the students were laughing at him he's like I have a PhD and everybody's just laughing but um, anyway moving on the name location and decorative quality and the remains highly suggest that this really is Caiaphas himself and then they date this thing uh, this this ossuary in the in the, the remains to somewhere between AD 43 and AD 70 Eighty seventy because that's when they quit making these things, these ossuaries. Eighty forty three because there was a coin found in this box from Herod Agrippa I, whom we know from the Book of Acts, but it wasn't until eighty forty three. So it's right in there. Even the date fits Caiaphas uh, just just right. And uh, guys, we have no other person in first century Israel known as Caiaphas who would satisfy the requirements for this ossuary. And so they, they believe also that. Uh, archaeologists believe that they found Caiaphas' daughter's ossuary. And we have a tomb belonging to Annas, the previous high priest. Isn't that cool? So, uh, second artifact, the Pilate Stone. After the trial with Caiaphas, Jesus was sent to Pontius Pilate. Matthew 27.2 says, They bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate the governor. And we all know Pilate, I think. Pilate is the most famous Roman governor of all time because he's the one who gave that final sentence upon Jesus, that he was to be crucified. And uh, he governed the Judean province from A.D. 26 to 36. At least that's what sources say, which is exactly right there when Jesus was crucified. And he is mentioned in all four Gospels, as well as several extra-biblical writings. These would be writings outside of the Bible. But it wasn't until recently that we found tangible evidence, right, that you can see and you can touch, you know, for his existence, beyond the writings and beyond some of his coins. Uh, Really, there's two artifacts that have been discovered related to Pilate. And one of them is the Pilate stone, this inscription found 1961, on a staircase at Caesarea Maritima. That's that city up on the coast, Caesarea by the Sea. Uh, That's where Paul spent two years in prison, remember that? Comes up very quite often in the the book of Acts. But this inscription includes Pilate's name and title and a dedication to Emperor Tiberius. Tiberium Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, dedicated. That's what this reads. And uh, archaeologist Dr. Randall Price writes Although Pilate's historical existence has never been seriously challenged, the discovery of this inscription removes all doubt and proves the existence of Pontius Pilate as an historical figure. Real guy really existed, right? How do you, how come on, guys? Are you going to make up a story about the governor? You know what I'm saying? And then expect people to believe it if it really didn't happen. Do you know how quickly that would be stamped out? The reason it wasn't is because it really happened. And these things are taking place with high-ranking individuals. So... You just don't make stuff up like this, but like the Gospels, like the Resurrection. More recently, though, they, had a, they found a copper ring bearing Pilate's name. There's a ring on it, and it has his name. And so if an official, a Roman official, wanted to do something in the name of Pilate, he would just show him Pilate's ring, basically. And it actually has the same spelling on it as the Greek New Testament. Uh, but uh, look at artifact number three, the crucifixion heel bone. A crucifixion heel bone. There's a, there's a handful of Christian and secular or non-religious historians who wrote about crucifixion. But until 1968, see, see all these finds are really recent. We're just getting started, folks. Uh, 1968, no direct evidence had been found for the practice of crucifixion in Israel. So what do scholars do? Oh, we gotta deny it, that it even happened. Well, no, we have evidence now. But various forms of crucifixion were used by ancient cultures. It wasn't just the Romans who crucified people. I mean, you had Assyrians and Persians and Carthaginians and Greeks. Someone, it, it took various forms. You could be impaled on a pole. You could be hanged. You could be executed on any sort of wooden structure a cross, a pole or a stake. Um, the, the Romans, though, they took crucifixion and they made it a science. And they made it the, the most excruciating form of death imaginable. And... Here's the reason they did it, because they wanted to use it as an effective political tool. Because where people were crucified, when people were crucified, they were crucified publicly on a main roadway right outside the city gates where everybody could see it. So they basically, all right, don't do what they did, right? Don't be an insurrectionist, that sort of thing. But uh, it was so shameful. Crucifixion was so shameful that it was typically illegal for Roman citizens to be crucified that's how bad it was and the records of jesus's crucifixion in the scriptures basically i mean it's right in line with all of the protocols and all of the sequences of crucifixion that we read in in writings outside the bible there's several writers outside the bible write about crucifixion and how it happened and what took place and well you read the gospels and it's right it's the same thing Right? It just lines right up with how Jesus was crucified. Individuals would be flogged with flagellum whips. You guys have seen those, right? Jesus in the, in the Passion, right? And how he's whipped with this whip that has bits of bone and metal and fragments in it. I mean, it was so bad. Or they would be beaten with rods, and he had rods struck on his head too, right? And it was so bad, some people wouldn't even survive the flogging sometimes. And Jesus couldn't even carry his cross, right? his crossbeam. To where he was going to be crucified. I think that's how badly he was, he was beaten. People could die of hypovolemic shock just from that alone, right? From blood loss. But after the flogging, they would be forced to carry the, the cross beam to the place of execution. Just, you know, this, I got a laser pointer, so I'm, just the patibulum, that's the horizontal piece. They would carry that piece to the place of execution, then they would be nailed to, or that would be secured to the vertical pole. Um, if they didn't have nails, they would take their arms and put them over the patibulum and tie them with ropes. I mean, that would be excruciating too. But then they would have their feet nailed uh, to that vertical pole as well and usually have their their hands or wrists nailed to the patibulum. But uh, early sources like Philo and Horace suggest that many crucified individuals weren't lifted off the ground very high so that animals could get to them. Isn't that terrible? Um, Sometimes their legs were broken to speed up their death because when you can't, when you're on the cross, you have to like lift yourself up on the nails in your feet in order to breathe properly. It's just it's really awkward, but they made it just excruciatingly painful. But they sometimes they would break the legs so that you couldn't lift yourself up and breathe properly, so they just speed up that process. Um, Jesus, we know. Uh, to fulfill prophecy, did not have his legs broken. So that's what's interesting about his. And like Jesus, sometimes uh, they would place a placard, like a, a title list, they called it, above their head with their name and their title on it. You know, we find these things. They would have been, been a wooden card. They would have been rubbed white with gypsum. And then they would have black or red letters on them. And what did Jesus' inscription say? His said, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. That was written on his placard and placed above his head, probably on a cross that looked just like that one, but uh, similar to it anyway. The same shape. Um, the Gospels don't explicitly state explicitly state that nails were used. I don't know if you ever thought about that. It just says there they crucified him. But uh, John chapter twenty verses twenty four through twenty seven says this: Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when jesus came when he came the first time as a resurrect after after being resurrected and so the other disciples were saying to him we've seen the lord we've seen him but he said to them unless i see in his hands the imprint of the nails and i put my finger into the place of the nails then and put my hand into his side i won't believe and so it's interesting, Thomas assumes and maybe even uh, witnessed Jesus' hands being nailed. And that, that word for hands is also a, a word that could be used for wrists as well. But uh, Paul also speaks, remember in Colossians 2.14, of Jesus nailing our sin debts, nailing our debts to the cross. And so, another reference to nailing. And uh, skeletal remains of two first century individuals in Judea have been uncovered revealing the use of nails. Um, the remains of one man was identified as Yehohan and the son of Hagkal. Uh basically, uh, John. but according to the inscription on his ossuary, uh, that's where we get the name from. We know who this guy was. He was crucified. He was placed in a bone box in a tomb, too. Uh, Dr. Titus Kennedy, another archaeologist, biblical archaeologist, writes, an iron nail about four and a half inches long with remnants of wood on it was still present in the heel bone. So the tip of this nail is actually bent around. It hit a knot in the wood, and then they just took it all with it because they couldn't get it out. So uh, He also had scarred up wrist bones, and uh, that may also indicate nails in the wrists, between his scarred-up wrist bones, between the, those two main bones, the radius and the ulna bones. And then there was another individual found. He had nails in his wrists, too. Same place. But this tells us that at least right one individual, a couple individuals, uh, were nailed to a cross in the first century in Israel. And yet, here's another reason why these individuals, here's why, another reason why this is important. After crucifixion, most individuals were cast into mass graves. You did not get a proper burial. You were a criminal. Throw him over the wall into the ditch, basically. Uh, but, and because of that, a lot of people would read the Gospels. Some scholars would read the Gospels, critical scholars, and they would say, see, that can't be true. Jesus He's a criminal, he was crucified, he could not have had a proper burial. Well, this Yehohanan's remains prove that you can get a proper burial, right? He was crucified, he was placed in an ossuary, in a tomb, just like Jesus. And so scholars, critical scholars, have had to retract their statements and come back again and say, okay, maybe Rome did allow Jews to practice their burial customs like Joseph of Arimathea did with Jesus' body, even though he was crucified. The last artifact, number four, is the burial tomb. The burial tomb. Matthew 27, 57 through 60 says, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. This guy was putting his life on the line when he did this. But he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, a brand new tomb he had made for himself, right? But he had hewn it out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. And so, as many of you know, there's different burial practices throughout time, and from culture to culture, there's different burial practices, but... uh, Common in Judea during the Roman era, during this time, involved preparing the corpse for burial, washing them, right, anointing them with oils and spices, wrapping them in the shroud, like you see described in the Gospels. And uh, basically, they did that as soon as possible, like the same day. Uh, it's what we see in the Gospels as well. But um, limestone is easy to cut out. Uh, it's easy to cut, and it was readily available throughout this region. There was hills made of limestone. And so uh, they would basically just carve these tombs out of the rocky hillsides, uh, like you see in the, in the picture there. But uh, they usually included right, a narrow entryway, like you see there, with a stone that you could roll in front of it. Uh, you would go inside to this, this uh, main chamber, central chamber, that's where the ossuaries were stored, and then there would be niches in the wall where people might be you know, buried, and then there would be extension chambers. Like someone else died, maybe, same time, they would build an extension chamber, and then they would lay them in there. And then someone else died, they'd build another extension chamber for this family or that family. But um, uh, interestingly, rather than being tossed into a mass grave like most criminals, Jesus was buried in a brand new tomb. Brand new, never been used, no extension chambers on it, but it belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. And the interesting aspect of the the tomb of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, traditionally claimed to be Jesus' tomb, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it doesn't have any extension chambers. That means that a rich man's tomb was only used once. That means Christians probably recognize this is the place, and then... Uh, I think it was, uh, I can't remember, Emperor Hadrian took and he built a pagan site on top of it to keep it from Christians from going there and worshiping it. And then Constantine comes and he removes it and he built a, builds basically a shrine on top of it. But um, anyway, it tells us that, that that might be Jesus' tomb. It was never reused. And uh, according to the text, Jesus' tomb appears to have a rolling stone door. Now, why is that important? A rolling stone door. It's noteworthy because these rolling doors were rare. They were a rare thing. Within the vicinity of Jerusalem, there are 1,000 or more rock-cut tombs. And uh, only four of them have rolling stone doors. The average Jewish family would have just rolled a square block in front of the door or something that looked like a cork to plug it. But um, tombs with rolling stone doors were typically reserved for people who were royal, really wealthy like Joseph of Arimathea he was a member of the council I just I find that incredibly interesting because after all he is royal he's the king of kings and the lord of lords right the son of God that's a royal family tomb, only used for him and he's coming one day again to judge the living and the dead so we've only scratched guys the surface of the archaeological evidence available just barely scratched it but uh i don't know about you but i find it substantial at least in the fact that the gospel writers knew what they were talking about the details in them tell us they were there they saw these things happen like thomas they saw the death they saw the burial they saw the resurrection with their own eyes hundreds of Thousands of eyewitnesses saw these things. You couldn't hide it. You couldn't escape it. It wasn't in a, done in a corner. These guys, I mean, think about this. The Gospels, they're, they're frequently attacked by critics and skeptics for being mythical and unreliable. To, uh, from, from my perspective, they're just flat out uninformed or willingly deceived. But... Uh, you need to know, guys, that the New Testament gospels are the most reliable ancient manuscripts that we have. You know, of any any documents in the world. These are the ancient documents in the world. They're the most reliable. We just have so many copies. So many. There's a lot of reasons why they are that way. But the archaeological discoveries also demonstrate the accuracy and historical reliability of the Gospels. And it's giving us an exceptionally clear window into the world and the life of Jesus Christ. And it shows us the Gospels aren't myths, they're not stories. These are real people in real places seeing real historical events. Prior to a lot of the discoveries being made in archaeology, many critical scholars used to promote the gospels as virtually devoid of history. And they even denied the existence of Jesus. Right? Yet there's there's just been so much evidence. You know, the people, we've got, we have direct evidence for 70 Old Testament people and 32 New Testament people. Right? The places, all of the towns. 150 years ago, we didn't know where a lot of this stuff was. Now we have almost every place uncovered. We know where it is. We know who these people are. We have evidence for them. We know where it took place. We have so many structures that have been uncovered, so many artifacts that so many, that many of these people, some of these old critical scholars, have had to reevaluate their perspective. And if they were alive today, they would. Some of them. right? So time and time again, it, it, they just... Have to have to retract claims leveled against the Bible, and I think that trend is going to continue, and it's going to continue in the scientific community as well, because it doesn't matter if you look, guys, through a little microscope or if you look through a telescope into this the the the, right the the universe, outer space. It doesn't matter where you look. Scientists discover this world is way more complex than they thought. And they have no idea what's holding it all together and keeping it all in play. You know, Darwin could not see a molecular cell. He could not see how complex it was. But we can. And the more we look, the more we dig, the more we research, the more we find out just how complex everything is, and everything points to a creator and sustainer of the universe. And guys, if there's a creator of this universe, don't, and he created you, don't you think that he loves you? Do you think he would have created you if he didn't? And don't you think if you were considered his child and you got in trouble that he wouldn't try to help get you out of that trouble so that you could be restored to him? I would do that for my kids, right? You would too. Guys, there is a God who is good and he loves you. And there's good evidence for that. And uh, I just encourage you to... To dig into the account of the resurrection even more in the Bible and its truth claims. And if, you, if you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, my prayer is that today you would, you would do that, right? You would reevaluate your perspective. Consider the evidence. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It's reasonable. It's based on evidence. And it's critical because the Bible says Jesus is God. He came into this world to die for your sins so that if, when you believe in him, in that moment you have everlasting life. Acts 4.12 says there is salvation. Basically, you're born again the moment you believe in Jesus Christ and you have an eternal inheritance reserved in heaven. That's how the Bible talks about it. Salvation, right? Let's look at this. Acts 4.12 says there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Basically, Jesus is the only way. And think about this: if there was another way, He wouldn't have needed to come and died died, and have to die for our sins. There's only one way, and the resurrection proves that. It proved He is who He said He is, and that He's able to save us from sin and save us from death. You know, part of the evidence for the resurrection is the lack of evidence. We don't have an ossuary with Jesus' bones in it. You know why? He was glorified. He had a literal, physical, bodily resurrection fit for heaven. And the good news is that when you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you get to have your own physical resurrection to life, forever in heaven with him, a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, an even better Jerusalem. At least that's what Revelation 21 through 22 says. Guys, Jesus' resurrection changed the world. It changed everything. And uh, he can change your life too, if you'll believe in him. But you got to trust Him as your Savior. And I invite you to do that today. All you got to, you know, just in your heart say, Lord, I'm a, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. And I believe that Jesus Christ is that Savior who rose from the dead. So I'd encourage you just to receive Christ as your Savior today. And if you have questions, let me know. I'd love to help you out with the next steps in your faith journey. And uh, there's also more um, just resources in your notes there to look up if you're interested in... Biblical archaeology and other discoveries and evidence related to, to Scripture and the truth claims of the Bible. But let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much uh, just for the opportunity to be here today to think about the resurrection. Lord, and I'm thankful, as many folks here are as well, that our faith is not something that is vain and it's not, it's not naive, it's not blind, but it's based on real, historical, tangible evidence. Including eyewitnesses, people who were there, people who gave their lives for what they saw. And Lord, I pray that we would give our lives in return. That we would, as believers in Jesus Christ, live now worthy lives uh, in light of the gospel and that we would share this good news with others. Lord, we love you, we we thank you uh, for what you've done for us and just want you to be praised, for you to be exalted and glorified in our lives, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.